Tonight's scripture is from Exodus chapter 31, verses 1 to 11, and chapters 40, verses 9, 33 to 34, and 38, in the NIV version. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of crafts. Moreover, I have appointed Aholiab, son of Ahisamech, of the tribe of Dan, to help him, Also, I have given ability to all the skilled workers to make everything I have commanded you, the tent of meeting, the ark of the covenant law with the atonement cover on it, and all the other furnishings of the tent, the table and its articles, the pure gold lampstand and all its accessories, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils, the basin with its stand and also the woven garments, both the sacred garments for Aaron the priest and the garments for his sons when they serve as priests, and the anointing oil and fragrant incense for the holy place. There to make them just as I commanded you. Take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and everything in it. Consecrate it in all its furnishings, and it will be holy. Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of the meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and the fire was in the cloud by night before the eyes of all the house of Israel at each stage of their journey. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I began my journey in a little church that gave me a wonderful foundation in the Word of God, and for that I am eternally grateful. But that was pretty much it. There was no experience of God through community or the Holy Spirit or the sacraments, and certainly no experience of God through art of any kind except for him singing to the piano and the organ, and I did experience God in in those beautiful old hymns. But beyond that, unless it put beans on the table, um, all other forms of art and music were frivolous at best, sinful at worst. But God had given me a love of the arts, and I wanted to study music in college. But what I wanted even more was to spend my life serving Christ, and I assumed I had to choose between the two. And so I chose to die to myself and to give up my music and pursue teaching, a respectable field where I could have opportunities to be creative and to impact lives. I now realize that God calls us according to our gifts and passions to bring his kingdom to earth in all arenas, including the arts. I think I kind of missed my calling, but thankfully God is a redeemer, and that is not the end of my story. So I married taught school, started a family, I attended church, prayed, studied the Bible, served others, and in general, tried my best to apply Christ's teachings in my life, my home, and in my family. 
I was a busy girl trying to do all the right things. But I learned firsthand that life can be harder than you think. People we love die. Others disappoint. We encounter our own flaws and failings. And despite our best efforts and intentions, sometimes we are shocked to learn that one plus one does not necessarily equal two. By my early 40s, my marriage was struggling, my daughter was rebelling, most of my joints were inflamed due to a painful flare-up of rheumatoid arthritis, and along came some misguided church leaders who dealt an unexpected blow to my heart. All of this landed me in a stupor on my sofa for a year of disillusionment and reevaluation. How had life gotten so far off track when I had tried so hard to be faithful? I was angry with the church, angry with God, and angry at myself for being such a fool and a failure. I couldn't read my Bible, pray, or listen to Christian music. I took a year-long break from church. I didn't stop believing in God or in Jesus, but it seemed that the conventional Christian path just hadn't worked for me. With all this new free time, I returned to my original passion for the arts. I started listening to great works of music and reading great works of literature, watching noteworthy films and attending plays and dance performances, visiting art galleries, and I even tried to learn a little bit about architecture and design. At first, I thought I was being selfish and rebellious by indulging in the arts. But then I began to encounter God in powerful new ways, experiencing mind-blowing epiphanies in my heart and mind, light and healing for my soul. I don't recall any one work of art in particular. There were so many that year. But to my surprise and delight, God used great art to enrich the soil of my soul, gently drawing me back to him. Through art, he showed me facets of his beauty, truth, and goodness that I would not otherwise have been able to receive. Ultimately, I made my way back to church with healthier expectations, and I returned to the spiritual practices, but completely integrated now with my passion for the arts. And the more that I continue to learn about worship and art, the more I understand how inseparable they are. Many authors and artists have helped articulate that for me, but two that have had the greatest impact are Mako Fujimura, whom you just met in the offertory, and also Ken Geyer. Ken Geyer's little book, Windows of the Soul, was my guidebook that year, uh, and he helped me understand how when we pay attention God speaks to us in all sorts of unconventional ways, including the arts. And this is something that he wrote. God gave us the arts as footpaths to lead us out of our hiding places and as signposts to lead us along in our search for what was lost. Our text today finds the Old Testament people of God lost in a similar desert of disillusionment. God has chosen Israel to become a model nation for the rest of the world to show how society is supposed to function according to God's plan. Nations of the earth will be inspired by them and drawn to know their God, fulfilling God's covenant with Abraham to bless all nations through uh, his offspring, through Abraham's offspring. 
And now, after 400 years of slavery in Egypt, God has rescued them, and they are on their way to the promised land. But first, they have to make their way through the desert. They are frustrated, tired, whiny, fed up with God's plan, and decide that they would rather worship a golden cow of their own making. But God uses this desert time to teach them about himself and to form their culture and identity as a nation. In Exodus 25, 8, God says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. And in Exodus 36, 2, And Moses calls Bezalel and Aholiab, whom we just read about, and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come do the work. So why did God choose art as a means of connecting with people? In her book, Prophetic Worship, author Vivian Hibbert says the job of the Old Testament artist was to craft the sights and sounds of God. When I taught fourth graders, I learned quickly that teaching is not telling. Teaching also involves showing, and learning requires experiences that engage all of our senses. Art shows rather than tells. Art speaks a universal language of the senses that can bridge the gap between the kingdom of heaven and of earth, or at least the distance between our heads and our hearts. Art does not set out to solve a problem, but rather to ask a question, to create an awareness, to direct us toward mystery. It's potentially transformative for both the artist and the audience. God called artists to create the space in which he would come to meet with his people because art helps us experience his glory, guidance, and presence. Uh, in verse 7 through 11, as we just read, he asked the artist to create the tent of meeting, the ark of the covenant, all the furnishings, the garments for the priest, the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense. I think this text shows three ways in which art helps us experience God through beauty, truth, and sacrament. So let's look. Where do we find beauty in the Tabernacle Commission? That one's a little easier. God was very specific about the aspects of beauty to be designed into each element of worship. The tent of meeting was to be made of fine linens and woolens, as were the priestly garments, which were also lavishly embroidered in symbolic details. The golden lampstand was sculpted with almond buds and blossoms. The Ark of the Covenant was a chest of acacia wood overlaid with pure gold and was covered by a throne of gold framed by a sculpture. These elements were clearly functional in worship, but were also beautiful. And later on, when God gives instructions for the temple, some of its elements are for the sole purpose of beauty. So why so much fuss about beauty? What use is beauty, which can sometimes appear to be extravagantly wasteful? In Isaiah 28.5, In that day the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty. So for starters, God is beauty, personified, which is basically why our encounters with beauty are often transcendent. Beauty, whether it's found in nature or in art, can be joyful and grand or fragile and broken. It can bring peace and joy, but it can also evoke longing, 
making us homesick for what is missing. Beauty, both in nature and in art, creates thin places in which the visible and the invisible realms almost touch. In his acceptance speech for the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1970, called Beauty Will Save the World, Alexander Solzhenitsyn says this, Art can warm even a chilled soul, I'm sorry, art can warm even a chilled and sunless soul to an exalted spiritual experience. Through art, we occasionally receive, indistinctly, briefly, revelations the like of which cannot be achieved by rational thought. It is like the small mirror of legend. You look into it, but instead of yourself, you glimpse for a moment the inaccessible, a realm forever beyond your reach and your soul begins to ache. So, if God still calls artists to reflect his beauty in the place where he meets with us, what does that look like today? In 1 Corinthians 3.16, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? In 2 Corinthians 6.16, for we are the temple of the living God. 1 Peter 2.5, You yourselves are living stones being built up as a spiritual house. How do we adorn the temple of God when it looks like us? Certainly with art and offerings in the places where we gather to worship, but maybe also with art that just adorns our spirits. Through beauty, we experience the glory and mystery of God and of life. One of my favorite encounters with God is through film in a scene from the Shawshank Redemption. Andy Dufresne has been falsely convicted of murder and has decided to make the best of his life sentence by soliciting donations of literature and music to enrich the lives of his fellow prisoners. When the books and record albums finally arrive at the warden's office, Andy locks the guard in the bathroom and seizes an opportunity to treat the prison population to something beautiful. Art helps us experience the mystery and glory of God through beauty. But beauty is nuanced by truth. Something may be beautiful, but if it doesn't also register in our spirits as true, it will be cliche, cheap, and inconsequential. Art helps us experience God through truth. And where do we find truth in our text? Well, if you could peek inside the Ark of the Covenant, you would find two tablets of stone from Moses' mountaintop meeting with God, a golden pot of manna, and Aaron's rod that budded. The Ten Commandments written on the stones was God's law, a record of rules on how people should behave toward God and toward each other. Aaron's rod and the pot of manna were symbols of their story, reminding them of their deliverance from Egypt and of God's faithful provision in the desert. So basically, the ark was a memory chest that preserved truth, a container that carried the values and symbols of their story, all sealed by a throne representing God's reign of grace and mercy. It was kind of like the wooden chest we have at home in our bedroom, stuffed full of keepsakes, scrapbooks, journals, photographs, my childhood Bible, baby books, and marriage records, all of which tells the story of our family, for better or for worse, but in truth. Truth is our plumb line. 
Last week, Doug taught on the prophetic nature of truth. It guides us, warns us, leads us toward understanding and compassion, and inspires us to act with grace and mercy. Art has the capacity to tell stories that can reveal truth and expose lies, or at least to ask questions prompting our own search for the truth. Joel Hartz of Image Journal says, Great art invites us to a direct experience with the enormous mystery of our common humanity. It bears witness to the truth of things not seen. So, if God dwells within us, maybe he is calling artists to create virtual containers of truth, holding the things that matter most, the symbols of our values, our relationships, and our story, all overlaid in the golden grace of God. In 1935, the Farm Security Administration hired photographers to travel across rural America, documenting the lives of struggling farmers. These images bore witness to suffering and misery, putting a human face on the devastating effects of the Great Depression for the whole nation to see. God cares about the oppressed, and this body of work evoked compassion and action, guiding our nation towards change and improvements in federal policy. Here are a few of the photographs. These are by Walker Evans and Dorothea Lang. I feel personally connected to these photos because of this last one. This one is not an FSA photograph, but it could have been. I don't know who took this photo, but it's a picture of my grandmother and her children. The little girl on the bottom left was my mother. They were migrant farm workers, mostly picking cotton across Oklahoma and Texas in the Dust Bowl days. My grandmother passed away about four years after this photo was taken. We sense that art is true when it somehow resonates with our own story. Art helps us experience the compassion and guidance of God through truth. Lastly, art helps us experience God through sacrament. In Exodus 40, verse 9, God said to Moses, Take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and everything in it. Consecrate it and all its furnishings, and it will be holy. The furnishings of the tabernacle are all about sacrament, physical elements infused by God's presence. A table becomes the place where God meets us in a piece of bread. A lamp becomes the light of Christ, fueled by the oil of the Holy Spirit. Fragrant incense becomes a prayer. A basin of water cleanses us from sin. Household items become sacred when God inhabits them. The common become holy when it is consecrated for God's purposes. Certainly, there are the holy sacraments of the church, the bread and wine of Eucharist, the water of baptism, the oil of anointing for healing, and among others. These holy sacraments are also a holy art form, a mixed media of touch, taste, smell, sound, and sight, the elements of art, and we experience God through them. But sacrament can take on a broader meaning, as Rachel Held Evans explains. A sacrament is when something normal becomes saturated with the holy. We sense the presence of God in a moment through an everyday object, action, gift, when something common reminds us of Christ. 
While I was away at college, my mother died unexpectedly. During those early days of grief, I used to go sit in her closet and bury my face in her clothes, trying to breathe in her smell. I was trying to make my memory of her more tangible. Sacrament is all about experiencing the intangible through the tangible. Sometimes art is like my mother's closet. Small celebrations of the ordinary become holy when we stop to breathe it in, helping us remember all that we have lost, all that we love, and all that we long for. In the early 1990s, during the Bosnian War, the city of Sarajevo was under siege for almost four years, or actually over four years. One afternoon, a bread shop opened for just a few hours in the square, and hungry people formed a long line waiting for this scarce commodity. But above the hill, snipers were also waiting with shells and bullets. They fired, ultimately killing 22 people, including emergency responders, and wounding dozens more. Vedran Smolovic, an internationally renowned cellist who lived in the neighborhood, rushed to the square to help the victims throughout the night. After the gunfire subsided the next morning, he went home to wash up and then returned to the square in suit and tie with his cello. He sat amidst the rubble and began to play Albanani's Adagio in G minor. returned to the square to play every day for 22 days in a row, one day for each person who was killed in the massacre, despite continued shelling all around the city. People gathered to listen and worship or hid in corridors. He says his music was a prayer of peace. People wept as they listened. A man and his cello became a symbol of civil resistance, and his music became a sacramental balm of healing for the city. Art helps us experience the healing, incarnational presence of God through sacrament. So, in a way, art saved my soul that year of despair. 
Thankfully, God redeemed my marriage, my daughter, my health, and my faith. And he taught me how to integrate my passion for the arts with my faith and Christian service. For me, and according to this text, worship and art are inseparable. I have spent more of my life nurturing artists and advocating for them than actually being one myself. But because I may have missed my calling to become a practicing artist, I try to make sure others don't make the same mistake. But I think I still have the soul of an artist, and that's why I understand them and love them. And I dabble enough in the arts to know that what they do is not easy and can sometimes feel very vulnerable. And so, dear artists, hear this. We value you. We love you. We bless you. We thank you for helping us experience God. Continue to steward the raw materials of time, space, sound, word, story, light, color, image, matter, and movement. Help us experience more of God through beauty, truth, and sacrament. We pray for a greater release of your gifts in our church and in our city. And yes, I dabble, but like most of you, I am really more a consumer of art than a creator of it. And so for the rest of us, including myself, let's seek out art that helps us experience more of God through beauty, truth, and sacrament. Let's give abundantly to support this kind of art whenever we find it. And let's pray for artists when we encounter them. Nurture artistry and creativity in yourself as the dwelling place of God. Artistry may not be your primary gifting, but created in the image of the master artist, there is at least a part of you that is inherently creative and artistic. Develop that part of yourself and experience God in it. And finally, in our text in chapter 40, And so Moses finished the work. In verse 34, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Verse 38, For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, before the eyes of all the house of Israel at each stage of their journey. Like the Old Testament children of Abraham, we have a new covenant through Christ, and we are also on a journey of beauty, truth, and sacrament to know and love God. Art helps us experience God's glory, guidance, and presence.